Welcome to NACSW's Podcast of the Month. Our podcast program makes available recordings of a wide variety of NACSW presentations and discussions on topics of particular interest to Christians in social work. Our Podcast of the Month program features a new podcast every 30 days for your listening pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'd like to welcome everyone to today's audio conference workshop entitled One Family Under God, A Theological Perspective on Immigration for Christian Social Workers. Our session today will be led by Sister Stephanie Spandel, LCSW, a clinical social worker in St. Paul, Minnesota. Immigration is currently at the forefront of national debate, and in recent years we've seen increased anti-immigrant sentiment at both individual and policy levels. Unfortunately, discussion and rhetoric is often heated and sometimes not factually based, but sometimes grounded in fear. Immigration policy is a complex matter that deeply and personally affects families and communities and requires both justice and compassion. How are we as Christian social workers to respond to this crucial issue in our time? On what foundation will we ground our response in our personal practice as well as our policy advocacy? What does God say about how we are to treat the stranger? And how are we called to reflect God's justice and mercy around this issue? In what way are we called to be prophetic? Today's workshop will explore the international, political, and social context of immigration today, as well as scriptural and theological foundations to guide our response and current policies and practices that invite our response. Resources for further prayer, reflection, and education will also be available. We're so delighted that you've joined us for today's session. Without any further ado, I'm delighted to present our speaker. Stephanie, it's all yours. All right. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, everybody, who who is on the call today. Um, this is my first time ever using all this technology and, and doing a webinar, um, so it's a little bit uh, different not being able to see your faces um, and, and kind of have that back-and-forth exchange so easily. Um, so, Rick, I'm going to ask if I tend to get on a roll because there's a short time with a lot of things that we could talk about. So if somewhere there seems like a, a, a nice pause or a place where you say, oh, we've been talking a while, uh, just if I don't catch that because I'm going, just just stop me and, and say, why don't we take questions now, okay? Good. Glad to. Thanks, Stephanie. All right. Thanks. Um, so, again, my name is Stephanie. I am a school sister of Notre Dame. And... Um, I have had a long-standing interest in uh, cross-cultural relationships, and and part of that has been um, for the last 20 or so years also around immigration issues. Uh, when I first joined um, the School Sisters of Notre Dame, which is a Catholic order of sisters, for those of you unfamiliar with that, um, I I joined uh, what was then our our multicultural committee, and a big focus of that was on immigration around the time of immigration reform in the early 90s. Uh, my background also is that since the early 90s, I also have been working with immigrants and refugees in a variety of settings, doing case management and advocacy um, as part of running a homeless shelter, and most recently in an organization that that provides a variety of services, but I provide. Um, clinical mental health services to immigrants and refugees, um, as well as um, case management and advocacy. Uh, so my love of people, my love of, of the wonderful gift in the United States of, of the variety of, of cultures and the diversity that we have, um, that really has brought me to this issue along with my, my Christian faith that, that really informs it. 
And so today, um, again, we have a little over an hour. It's a short time for such a topic, um, especially uh, given its very prominent um, place in our national discussion right now. Uh, so we will touch the surface of a number of things. And what I hope is that it gets you started thinking and reflecting, and probably you already are on this, on this webinar, um, and that it gives you some more resources to, to take back to others and to do your ongo own ongoing um, education and prayer and reflection. So today I'm going to start with um, looking at some of the context of immigration, and then we'll move to some theological reflection uh, related to immigration and what our churches are saying, what our scripture says, um, what our faith traditions um, are, are um, inviting us to consider um, about living out our faith. Um, and then moving, how does that call us to action, um, both social workers and as Christians, um, and how do we integrate those two? So we start today um, with a slide looking at um, a poem that we're, we're quite familiar with, at least parts of it, uh, that's engraved on the Statue of Liberty. Um, Emma Lazarus is the, a new colossus, and it really speaks to um, our U.S. identity as a nation of immigrants. Other than the Native Americans country, we are all immigrants, uh, voluntary immigrants, and in the case of our African-American brothers and sisters, uh, involuntary through slavery. But most of us came from elsewhere, and our Native American brothers and sisters have... Uh, had to find ways along the way to to work with us as well as people came and and we know some of that history. So we are a very diverse, um, very diverse country um, with the riches and the struggles that that entails. Um, so in this poem, Emma Lazarus takes what I think is our ideal image as a country and says that we're not like the Greek gods. Um, we're not. We're not idolizing that which is the most strong and, and uh, uh, conquering, um, but rather we have a mighty woman with a torch, and her name is Mother of Exiles. And she says, keep ancient lands your storied pomp. Rather, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Uh, send these, the homeless, and tempest-tossed to me. We know as part of our history that this, this indeed is many, represents well many, many of the immigrants who have come in the past. It certainly is my ancestors fleeing poverty and many who come today seeking a better life. And that, that we believe that greatness and strength can be built on, on what seems weakness. And, and that's a message in the gospel as well, and, and ties in very well in our, our Christian faith tradition. Another piece of the context of immigration is that right now in our country, 13% of our current population is foreign-born. And if we count their children that were born here, 20% are recent immigrants. Um, again, we all have that history, unless we're Native American, but currently of new immigrants, it's about 20% with, if we count the immigrants and their children. And this compares um, quite closely to the early 
20th century, from about 1880 to 1920, when there was a large influx of um, European immigrants at that time, uh, Irish and Italian and um, Polish, uh, what we call Eastern Europe, uh, that were adding to the many other immigrants that had already come. And so this time in our history, again at the turn of the century, shows a similar um, increase in immigration. The things that affect immigration um, are international realities. So as we know, there are wars throughout the globe. The U.S. is part of, of a few of those um, that create huge numbers of refugees. Uh, poverty. There is tendency today um, often to try to... Um, to say that economic immigration is, you know, we shouldn't focus on it, we shouldn't allow those folks in. But poverty has been and will continue to be a huge reason that people seek to move. They can't sustain themselves in their countries. And so uh, that is another major mover of immigration. And then there's U.S. policies. Uh, we think uh, in the past we've had policies, for example, related to Guatemala, Nicaragua, and El Salvador, uh, in the past where we supported dictators that created a number of uh, political asylees. And um, at that time, because, um, because of our politics and our multinational corporations and different other factors, those folks, oh, excuse me, I'm losing my microphone, those folks were not allowed to, to immigrate um, and the sanctuary movement was created. They came as asylum seekers, and many churches were involved in providing sanctuary um, at that time. And then economic globalization, as we know, multinational companies, the movement of jobs, all have been part of creating um, immigration patterns. Our U.S. realities as well affect. Um, so we've had the recession, and so there's a lot more struggle when economically our country is not doing well. Uh, the fear is becomes much more increased that immigrants are taking our jobs. Um, there's a lot more anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric at that time. Um, and we have seen actually a decrease in some of the undocumented immigration um, because there aren't as many jobs. So that affects uh, part of what's happening. We're an aging population. And we are starting to lose people in, in quite a number of jobs. And so part of our reality is, is we need immigrants um, to provide uh, workforce and skills. Um, we have a de decreased tax base with fewer workers. And again, immigrants bring um, that economic uh, input and, and contribution to our society. And we have need for both skilled and unskilled workers. Sometimes there's a lot of emphasis put on uh, STEM workers, science, technology, engineering, and medicine, um, and saying, well, those are the folks we should allow in. But we have a lot of need for unskilled workers. Recently, uh, with some of the anti-immigrant laws in, in uh, some of the states, there were huge agricultural losses uh, because the workers had moved out. Um, and we'll take a, a look at those in this next slide here. So since the mid-90s, there has been increasing hostility in the national environment. And what we've seen is that um, the federal government has stalemated on this issue. There have been attempts since 
uh, during uh, George Bush's administration and now with Obama's administration to bring about immigration reform, and they've just gotten stuck. And so states have done a number of things um, and taken the, the immigration debate to, to the state level. What we see is that uh, specifically Arizona uh, started it, Georgia and Alabama have followed, other states have tried, um, creating some very strong uh, anti-immigrant laws um, that have done, one of the biggest is that it's led to a lot of racial profiling. There's been efforts to have local police um, act as an enforcement arm of ICE so that when they pull someone over for anything, they would check their immigration status and take them in if they're undocumented um, or if they're suspected to be undocumented. And this leads to a lot of racial profiling um, because there's an assumption about who is undocumented. And there was a, a um, I don't know if he's still a, a congressperson, I didn't look that up, but I found a quote um, from um, Jose Serrano, who was at one point anyways the um, chair of the Hispanic Caucus in the House of Representatives. And he said, my first name is Jose. I was born an American citizen. I resent having to prove I am a citizen. And if you ask papers right now, I cannot prove it. Neither could you. But most of you will never have to. I will because of my first name or accent, and I resent it. One of the things that most people aren't aware of is that undocumented immigrants are much more than the Latino immigrants who most people imaginally think, uh, immediately think of. Many Canadians, Polish, and Irish are also undocumented, as are other immigrants from Asia and from Africa. Again, the, the enforcement tend to make assumptions and lead to racial profiling. Um, and so people who are citizens but look like they might be um, an undocumented immigrant or belong to that group are pulled over, are arrested mistakenly. People have been deported who are citizens. Uh, because of, of the craziness of some of this. And so it's important to, to realize how that affects our liberties as well, as all citizens. Um, one of the other things that are part of some of these, um, these efforts are um, efforts to criminalize um, undocumented immigration so that um, what has been a civil offense, they're trying to make a criminal offense. And along with that, even when it is a civil offense, many immigrants are detained with other jailed criminals. And that's really um, frightening, frankly, um, when you're with violent criminals and you have a civil offense of, of being undocumented. And it's created a huge uh, prison industry uh, for, related to um, immigration detainees. One of the things that... Um, that affects social workers in particular around this is there have been efforts to make laws that, that basically say that criminalize anyone who would shelter, transport, educate, buy medical care uh, to undocumented immigrants. Those laws have been struck down at this point in the courts, but the fact that there have been those efforts um, really speaks a lot to to the um, to the discrimination, to, to the outright um, hatred at times, um, and certainly the fear 
uh, of immigrants that that has become prevalent in, in many places. One of the realities of some of those laws have been that immigrants have left some of those areas so that we know that in Georgia there were huge losses of peaches, berries, and onions because farm workers left, which has led to a lot of expense. Um, Arizona has lost a lot of money, not only from workers leaving, but uh, from people refusing to have conferences there. So there's been a huge economic impact because part of what we forget is that in my area, meatpacking plants wouldn't exist without our immigrant communities, and our food would be much more expensive uh, without that. And, and so we benefit even as we decry um, the immigrants that come. At the same time, there have been increased efforts to, um, to counteract that, and this is a newer phenomenon in the last few years um, that has been really exciting. There have been efforts for the creation of welcoming communities, so efforts um, to provide driver's licenses for the undocumented, knowing that um, really people are out driving anyway, so better that they're licensed and insured, um, providing in-state tuition for undocumented students. There's been efforts for the DREAM Act, which would be to, to um, provide education and legalization for um, young people who were brought as children. And, of course, we know there's been efforts towards comprehensive immigration reform. There's also been an effort uh, by a Minnesota congressman, um, Keith Ellison, strengthening Refugee Resettlement Act that really helps to streamline immigration and to better prepare refugees um, before they come and to, for support services once they're here. So there have been a number of, of uh, positive uh, efforts as well. And I think it's helpful to remember, as frustrating as I find, anyways, much of the negativity, it's helpful to have historical context that there have been waves of anti-immigrant sentiment from our earliest history. Uh, Benjamin Franklin spoke against the German immigrants, afraid that they would that they would take over and that somehow English would the German would become the national language instead of English. Back in the in the 1700s, um, there's been exclusion of Lots of, you know, uh, Irish need not apply. Eastern Europeans are bringing disease and, you know, are lazy. And, and the Chinese were excluded um, for about 60 years from immigrating, as were some other Asians. And it wasn't until 1965 that quotas and the exclusion of certain ethnic groups um, was lifted. Uh, so, so there's a huge history of despite of the fact that we are a nation of immigrants. And it just helps to give a little context, at least for me, um, in, in trying to be patient with, <laughs> with um, the struggle that we, we have ongoing. A little bit also to give you some context to immigration to help understand is there are different types of immigrant stat, immig immigration status. So we have immigrants who come, um, how would I say, voluntarily or they, they, they come perhaps because of a job, they come looking for that, they come under what we call immigrant status. And that includes those who come documented with papers and those who come undocumented. And in the immigration um, laws in, that went along with welfare reform in the 19, like 1996, I think it was, it's helpful to know these immigrants are not um, able to access uh, food stamps, medical care, uh, medical assistance, or any kind of cash assistance for the first five years that they're here. The expectation is that you've come, that you have a means to support yourself, and 
and the law then makes those unavailable unless it's, for example, emergency medical care. Uh, there's a common misperception that people come and they right away sign up for benefits. Uh, many people could indeed benefit from medical assistance even as they're working, um, but it's not available for those first uh, five years. Secondly, we have uh, refugees. These are folks that are fleeing war and violence. They face death in their home countries, and they have most often stayed in refugee camps, and they get processed through the United Nations and then are able to center countries, including the United States. And the United States has a quote of how many refugees are allowed in each year. And that changes um, periodically. Um, I can't tell you the number right now. I forgot to write it down, but it's used somewhere between 80 and 90,000, I believe. Are similar to refugees. They have a, a well-founded fear of persecution, but they've escaped their country, and rather than ending up in a refugee camp, they have somehow made it to the United States, and have and they request asylum here. Their situation is particularly difficult because when they come, they are not allowed a work permit for the first six months of being here. So they often end up staying with friends, family, strangers even, um, as they begin that process of seeking asylum. Many are detained at the airport, um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of inconsistency in how asylum cases are processed across the U.S. And some people are, are sent back right from the airport without ever having, to, having the opportunity to speak to a judge. So there's a lot of concern about the justice in our asylum system right now. It's also helpful to, again, remember immigrants often come from the trauma of war and persecution or the trauma of deep poverty. And again, there, there tends to be a tendency nowadays to reject the validity of economic migration. And yet, our, as we'll see later in the theological reflection, our churches say people, humans, have a right to try to support and sustain their families. As social workers, um, it's helpful as we work with immigrants and refugees to, to remember the challenges of resettlement. Culture shock, separation from family and social support, poverty, language barriers, and racism. Um, and thinking of that, some of the, the immigration reform legislation right now, as I mentioned, is putting a lot of emphasis on those science and technology uh, immigrants um, and wanting to reduce family immigration. And again, as he later, the churches are saying, no, we need to prioritize family-based petitions um, because that family and social support and the importance of the family and the well-being of the human person is essential. And so as social workers, again, what happens when we work with immigrants and refugees who are not, who are separated from their families, um, how is that affecting their, their mental health, their, their physical and social well-being? Um, and how can we support policies that, that will help reinforce uh, the importance of, of family-based petitions? And then finally, a high percentage of refugees suffer mental health issues but greatly underutilized services. So again, within our own profession, looking at how do we reach out and how do we make our services more um, effective and available? Stephanie? Uh, yes, I was just thinking, was good place for some questions. Perfect. <laughs> Just a reminder to anyone, if you have any questions or comments as Stephanie begins the question and answer session, please hit star six on your telephone keypad, and that will unmute you for, uh, for you to make your comment or question. 
or for any of you who want to enter your comment or question in the chat feature of the webinar, you can do that on the left-hand portion of your screen. Okay, Stephanie. Okay, so uh, questions, comments to, to this point? Hello, this is Mark, and I'm just glad that uh, when the government's kind of going to shut down soon that uh, we can talk about immigration freely as a group of Christians. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Rick and I were talking a little bit before saying this had been really on the table and things were moving and now oh, everything stopped. And, and it certainly is on the back burner right now um, as far as, as legislation goes. Um, but, but as we know, these political changes and social changes take a lot of time and effort and energy and um, and so it's an ongoing work in progress. And, and I'm grateful the churches have become so involved, uh, so involved. And that's what we're going to get to in these next sections. Um, it's just really beautiful. And I see, I see a, a comment from Suzanne. Working, I work with Middle Eastern immigrants. Thank you for this. Uh, you're welcome, Suzanne. I, I'm grateful that you're here, too, and, and for everyone who has an interest, because it's certainly... Uh, a passion of mine and, and important, um, I believe, in a, a huge part of, of our, our national identity and our national strength. Any other questions or comments that uh, anyone would like to raise at this point in time? Okay, Stephanie, we'll hand the baton back to you. Okay, thank you. So as we move into uh, the theological reflection, um, the first thing I want to say is when I first started working around the immigration issues, um, the Catholic Church um, put out a, um, a statement, One Family Under God, which this presentation is named after, um, in 1995. And for a while, uh, that was the only statement. And then different churches began writing statements and really reflecting on this um, issue. And it had been. It's just that the Catholic tradition has a long history of what we call Catholic social teaching and writing these documents. But it's continued to grow as a variety of churches um, have um, begun to really, really take this issue on as, as an important moral issue. And um, I first gave this presentation at an NACSW conference, well, a, a variation of it, <laughs> Uh, in 2008, and there were a few people there, and wasn't that much on, on the national radar at the time. And then I got uh, 2012, last November, and now this time. And, and since that 2008 presentation, I was so excited to see so many more statements from such a great variety of churches. And just recently, in February, as we'll see later, um, there was a, 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 a statement from a coalition of, of many, many churches um, that was put out together. Um, so, so again, we can just, I think, be really um, encouraged and um, inspired by the fact that, that our, our, our different Christian denominations, that our Christian faith really um, is calling us to be um, an active and important place in this in our national conversation right now. So just a couple of um, quotes to, to kind of pull that out for us. 
um, from the Church in the Modern World. It's a, a document from the Catholic tradition in Vatican Council II. Members of the body of Christ have the responsibility of reading the signs of the times and interpreting them in light of the gospel. Each and every age called to, to look at what's happening, the, the, the realities of their historical time, to try to comprehend them and respond to them from the unique perspective of faith, from the vision of Christ. The National Evangelical Association, which wrote an immigration statement in 2009, the Bible does not offer an exact blueprint for modern mission, but it can serve as a moral compass and shape the attitudes of those who believe in God. And that's exactly the basis of the foundation in which we, we have this webinar today, is to look at, you know, what, what are some of those pieces? And so we'll take a look today at... Um, Scripture, Old and New Testaments, um, what our theology and our sacraments tell us that might speak to immigration, and then what our social and moral teachings from our faith traditions less. Just a list of, of some of those scripture passages, and you, you were emailed um, some resources in which I list these and, and many others and, and uh, actually put some of the passage itself on there to make it easier for you. Um, but I just have these in here again as, as some of the, the many scripture passages from early in Genesis where we hear that all humans are made in the image and likeness of God, a key and fundamental understanding uh, when we act, um, appreciating the diversity that immigration brings to our country. Um, through into the New Testament, Jesus himself was a refugee um, when, the when the Holy Family had to, to flee to Egypt to escape Herod, um, and then Jesus' teachings. And so there are many, and I invite you uh, to, again, just reflect on Scripture um, as you pray, as you um, do more reading and education around this issue for yourself. Um, but Scripture offers just a, such a beautiful basis for or approaching um, this particular issue and dialogue in our country. Um, migration was extremely common in the ancient world. So this is not a new reality for us. Um, here in Leviticus, when an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So again, very clear directive in Scripture, um, reminding the Israelites that they had been refugees. They had been refugees in Egypt, and they were to treat the refugee, the alien, um, as one of their own. And again, I think as Americans, this is where we, we, we share that story. We say we were all immigrants, except for our Native American brothers and sisters, and we are called to welcome new immigrants um, in the same way, actually to do a better job maybe than they were welcomed when our ancestors, when some of our ancestors might have come. And then another piece from Leviticus, there shall be for both you and the resident alien a single law, a perpetual law throughout your generations. You and the alien shall be alike before the Lord. And I put this in because I think it's really important because right now the United States currently does not live um, this particular 
command. Right now, in U.S. law, for immigrants, the definition for an aggravated felony was changed in 1996 for immigrants, not for the rest of us, only for immigrants, to cover a host of minor offenses. So originally, it referred to murder, drug trafficking, trafficking of firearms, very serious kinds of crimes. And this is important because an aggravated felony will get you deported. And when we think about deportation, we have to think about its human consequence, um, about the families left behind. Um, when refugees are deported, um, they are deported back to places where they'll be killed. Now, technically, the government can't do that, so they often languish in um, prisons, uh, waiting here to be deported. Recently, um, Minnesota has a large Somali population. And recently, they said they will be deporting some Somali refugees back to Somalia. Supposedly, it's more stable, not from anything we've seen, really. But there's a functioning government, uh, and so they're being deported back, even though many times those being deported were brought here very young, committed some foolish crime as a youth or a young adult, um, before they were fully developed emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And now they're being deported to a place where they very well may be killed and certainly have no identity with that country anymore. Um, because now an aggravated f felony for immigrants, again, not for the rest of us, includes simple assault, like a bar fight, filing a false tax return, or even failing to appear in court. Um, so... This, this scriptural mandate to say you must have the same law is not being lived in our country right now and is, is creating a huge amount of injustice because it, in some cases as well, people are not even being given full due process in some of these instances. Um, and it's very traumatic, again, for the, for the person involved. And yes, they may have committed a crime, but does it deserve, is it, is the, is the punishment cruel and unusual, as we would say in our, our Constitution? Another scripture passage that I particularly find relevant and, and particularly love um, is from the prophet Isaiah. And it's helpful to remember that the, con the context of the book of Isaiah is the Israeli people in exile in Babylon. And eventually, as part of that story, being freed to go back to Jerusalem, and some choosing to stay, and some choosing to, to go back to their homeland. But in this particular passage, Isaiah speaks to those who are saying, who are saying to God, why are you not hearing us? We're fasting. We're, we're covering ourselves in sackcloth and ashes. We're not eating, and you aren't hearing us. And God is saying, no, that's not what I want. Is not this the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice? to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless into your house. And then it goes on to say, and then your own light shall break forth like the dawn, and your own healing shall spring up quickly. And I think that, that that's such a beautiful reminder to us that, that, again, when we help others, we too are healed. When we welcome the immigrant, we too um, are blessed and enriched. And in fact, it goes on to say, And your ruins shall be rebuilt, 
repair of the breach and the restore of ruined homesteads. And for me, every time I read that, I cry um, because I work with refugees daily whose homes were destroyed, whose families were destroyed. And, and the gift to be able to, to walk with them and, and in Scripture to find that, that blessing that, that we are called and invited to be restorer of ruined homesteads and repairing that breach, um, I just think is, is such an incredible um, blessing and, and uh, a deep invitation from our, from our God. And that passage reminds us, it challenges us, um, it, because we can very often have the tendency to consider religious practices sufficient of their own. Like, I go to church, I pray, and that's enough for, for being holy. When really the radical call of God's justice is that we need to live this out in real life. And, and often we say, well, that's not practical. But, but God's call isn't always practical. And that when we talk about fasting, um, self-denial of the flesh must be accompanied by the self-denial involved in serving the needs of others and rooting out injustice. And again, as social workers, our social work code of ethics calls us to that. We are about addressing injustice uh, in our world, in our, in our communities, uh, anywhere from our most local setting to, to the international setting. And again, one can only return to right relationship with God by entering to live in right relationship with others. Again, Isaiah speaks to us about that. And then we go to the life of Jesus. And again, Jesus is very clear. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. What you did to one of the least of these, you did to me. And we hear from Virgil Elizondo, who was a Latino priest. Uh, I think last I knew he was in Texas. I think he says it very well. Discipleship is not a passive privilege, but an active mission. We are not invited to relax and bask in the pleasure of God's love, but rather to bring that love to fruition on earth. So again, not a, not a wonderful thing that I know Jesus and that's good for me, but, but what does that mean for how we live and how we, and how we share that love with others? And then we go to our theology. So the theology that we've, we've come to articulate out of our understanding of Scripture and, and the life of Christ. And first, as I mentioned, based in Genesis, the, the Imago Dei, we are all made in the image and likeness of God. And so we need to treat everyone with that respect. Also, we know that the Christian faith is incarnational. We have um, many of our traditions have the tradition of communion. And in that, we, we both receive and in receiving become the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We believe that God came to earth in flesh to be with us, to make God's love visible, and that we too are called to enflesh the presence of Christ in our world, to give flesh and substance to the gospel. And so, again, around the immigration of the issue of immigration, this uh, this is part of that call to, to enflesh uh, that love of God. Monica Helwig, uh, a theologian who wrote The Eucharist and the Hunger of the World, I think uh, writes something beautiful related to the, the theology of, of Eucharist or communion. She speaks saying, One person is the sustenance of another wherever one rescues another from despair and offers something for which to live. 
And again, as we think of the suffering, uh, whether it's the suffering of war, um, of economic deprivation, of um, whatever it might be, political persecution, religious persecution, that bring people to the United States, that hope for something better, when we help be part of that um, welcome, that, that rescuing from the despair that perhaps someone is coming from, we are living Eucharist. And we know that Jesus eats with the tax collectors, that relationship is primary as a means of bringing about healing. And so we can ask ourselves, do our neighbors see us eating with, visiting, praying with our immigrant sisters and brothers? Are we visible witnesses to that? In addition to our foundational theology, such as Eucharist and Imago Dei, we have our social teaching. So our Catholic social teaching, one of the principles um, is human dignity. The dignity of the human person is the ethical foundation of a moral society, and every institution must be measured by whether it enhances the life and dignity or threatens the life of the human person. And again, with the NASW Code of Ethics, social workers respect the inherent dignity and worth of the person and challenge social injustice. Um, from John Paul II, I think, is a wonderful um, reflection on solidarity. It's very easy at times to say we're in solidarity with others, be in solidarity with others. And I think he's very good at challenging us to say we can't allow that when we say that to be just a vague feeling of compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many people near and far. Rather, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good because we are all really responsible for all. And I think, again, that's where this webinar came from, was this, this invitation to say, how to look beyond those feelings of compassion and distress and look at and how does that call us to action? And I'm looking at the time, so we better get to that really quickly. Um, uh, just very quickly again, a change of mentality is needed, not seeing the poor as burden or as care training. And they said, you know, we need to change the looking at somebody who maybe is acting out in some way and saying, what's wrong with you, but rather, what happened to you? And I think around immigrants, it's the same thing. It's not, why do you want to come and take what's ours? Or, you know, why don't you stay home? But, but who are you? What's your story? What brings you here? And, and how, how is it that you share this American dream? The bishops of the other and their document speak of the birth of the church in the sense that the, the early disciples rightly saw the social critique embedded in Jesus' total availability to others and that they were united in this passionate conviction that, that they were empowered by the same spirit um, and that they should welcome one another and everyone else the way Jesus did. And so we know uh, in the letters, or at least in the early communities, that there's no slave or free, woman or man, rich or poor, Gentile or Jew, 
they talked about we are all God's children. And they organized themselves as a community to transform Jesus' personal example into a collective way of life that could challenge prevailing cultural and social norms. And the Episcopal bishops say this has practical consequences for how we approach immigration reform. Again, that our job is challenge prevailing cultural and social norms. And again, look at things in light of the gospel. The Mennonite tradition um, did a wonderful uh, survey, a listening project, they called it, uh, of their churches around this issue and really looked at, at the, the struggles, the fears, the hopes, the, the conversion that was taking place around this issue in their various uh, traditions. And one of the things they said in response to, to what came out of that was that to authentically respond to immigration, whites must start seeing immigrants as us instead of them. After that, white churches must embrace risks. And part of what they're speaking to there is that while immigration is complex, very often embedded in it is, is racism and this fear of the other, and that's often determined by race or ethnicity. And they also go on to remind us that, that our Christian traditions have throughout history taken bold positions at odds with the rest of society. So from their tradition, they talk about Anabaptists standing up for their core beliefs during Reformation, holding on to pacifist convictions during World Wars I and II, and so on. And they say, we've taken risks in the past in the name of God's love, and why not now? And again, as I mentioned, um, the Christian churches have a long history of responding to, to immigrants and their needs. Uh, my own congregation, the school sisters, uh, came here to serve uh, German immigrants and to help them get education and, and settle in. Um, after World War II, uh, one of the Lutheran statements says that one in every six Lutherans worldwide was a refugee after World War II. And the Lutheran church responded uh, in try and many churches responded in trying to respond to the refugees of that time. And again, in the 70s and 80s, churches sponsored immigrants from the Vietnam War, uh, Hmong uh, immigrants, Cambodian immigrants. We've had the sanctuary movement for uh, helping immigrants from Latin America escape uh, dictators that our government was supporting. We sponsor refugee families. So there's a long history. Um, that, that we can be proud of and that we want to build on and continue to um, and, and to continue. Uh, perhaps, Rick, maybe here we can just pause for, again, any questions or comments before we look at the call to action. I was thinking the same thing. So anyone who's interested in raising a question or making a comment, again, um, star six on your phone. and. Uh, we're open to anything you might have to say. Let's hear from you. Again, it would be star six on your keypad. Or if you're having any difficulty, um, you can type into the chat screen on the left, and we can um, see your question or comment there. All right, guys. Uh, what it is is... Uh as I've been going this, through this uh, this uh, commu communication, I had the idea that uh, tithing, paying you know tithing to your church, seems to be would tie into this immigration issue. 
And so I, I support paying tithing to your church. And could you say a little bit more about about what that how you or what that means to you or how that how you see that specifically uh, tying into immigration? Are you asking? Well, are you still there? Yes. Yes, I'm asking okay. if, if you could expand on that a little and, and specifically how you see that um, tying into immigration for you. Okay. Well, what it is, um, if, uh, you know, government services and whatnot are not available for five years, um, certainly, uh, you know, Catholics can go to their churches and, and uh, you know, uh, Protestants to their churches and whatnot. And, and if the churches have been paid tithing, they'll have resources to help the poor. Okay, great. Yep. And and that's very, very true. And and churches have been extremely generous um in this and that and that is a gift. Um there's been some talk at times in the political realm of saying, well, we should just take away government funding and let the churches do it all, but uh, actually we need a broader base and we need both the government funding and the church support. Um and indeed, uh when we tithe, when we, we give fully to our churches, um both in in money, but also in our time and our talent, um, that really does allow us to more fully um, fulfill the mission um, and our outreach to, to immigrants and refugees uh, certainly being one part of that, an important part, and, and an increasing focus right now um, in our churches. Other comments, questions? Going once, going twice. Why are doing all the comments? What's that? Okay. Okay. Stephanie, I think all you're right. ready for a call. We'll to you on. All right. Wonderful. I just so wish I could see your faces. <laughs> so, oh, and I see a couple of um, of um chat messages coming in. Uh, thank you for the scripture references. You're, you're welcome. Um, and I encourage you to, to find more and to really spend time with them. Um, see, well, one says, um, if there's a need, we should respond regardless of any personal characteristic of the person. I feel the sleeping giant needs to wake up and respond once again. Um, yes, and again, I think that, that that's where scripture... Um, speaks so much to us because we know Jesus went beyond all the social norms of his times in terms of who he reached out to, eating with tax collectors, being with the Samaritan woman, you know, curing uh, one of the Roman centurion's um, servant, you know, always stretching beyond those norms. And so no matter who it is, again, they are made in the image and likeness of God. So, again, thank you for reemphasizing that. So the call to action, wow, where to start? And again, each person, each of you will, will find your way in your setting, uh, in, your, in your town and, and however you're involved um, nationally and, and internationally um, to, to try to respond. So in terms, I would say the first thing is to educate ourselves. We need to continue educating ourselves and then others about the issues related to migration and the experiences of immigrants and refugees. As I was preparing this presentation, I thought, oh, I'll just be able to pull my slides from last year and shouldn't take too much. 
And I was busy looking around for a few more church documents, and oh my, I found more, and I found more, and then that led me to different, and then I thought, oh, you know, I need to look up more about some of the history of immigration, and, and I need to look up, you know, what's happening and clarify politically what's happening now. And, you know, it, there's just so much. And then how do I reflect on, or how do I make sure that I try to, in some way, know personally in my life, immigrants and refugees, and, and um, have those relationships that are witnesses to others. So again, educating ourselves and then trying to find ways to bring that to others and creating bridges then between immigrants and refugees and various other people and groups, especially welcoming them into our church communities. Again, that's a witness. Um, I know that I found in the volunteers that come, that come to the organization I work for um, that, you know, they, they're transformed because they have this, this relationship um, with people and they hear the stories and then they go and they tell their friends and their neighbors and their fellow church members and and that that spreads if they say you don't know the story here's the story listen to what happened to this person and they promote cultural understanding and we all have that opportunity um, to do that you know this this culture thinks this way maybe because or this is a different perspective um, again, many immigrants come from various faith traditions, so part of that is also promoting religious tolerance and understanding when immigrants come with traditions different from our own and saying, how do we, how do we again, build mutual understanding and respect uh, as part of that? And again, as social workers, um, that is a big piece of, of our call um, to promote that, that understanding, respect, tolerance, knowing that there's, there's different worldviews, different um, beliefs, different ways of, of understanding um, life, and and that all adds to the richness, again, of who we are. Another big piece, of course, is beyond our local and personal lives, is that we have a call to be involved at a political level. At, when we look at the laws that that affect the lives of all of us. So we hear that justice has implications the way that the larger social, economic, and political institutions of a society are organized. So how do we work to improve relevant policies, procedures, and services, perhaps at our place of ministry, um, so that we better serve immigrants and refugees? So how do you make an analysis of saying, are there barriers and blocks? What keeps refugees and immigrants from coming here? How do we make them feel more welcome? How do we better serve their needs? And then on a larger scale, how do we advocate for legislative change in immigration policy that respects human dignity? We're going to take a look here um, at some of the underlying tenets that our churches are telling now as we look at legislation in particular, and particularly the legislation of immigration reform. So first we hear, um, and this comes from uh, Strangers No Longer, uh, from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops in 2003, um, but it's re-echoed in a number of the other church documents, that persons have a right to find opportunities in their homeland. In other words, what can we as Christians do to help attend to the root causes of migration, poverty, injustice, religious intolerance, armed conflicts, so that people can actually remain in their homeland and support their families? which is usually the preferred dream for, for most people is, is to stay. It's, it's hard. 
I, the, the stories that immigrants tell me, and even as I think of my own family history and my grandparents, it's hard to come to a new land with a new language, with a different way of seeing and doing everything. Um, it would be so much nicer to stay at home and, and create one's life in one's homeland. Um, and so what can we do to help make that more possible? But then our Christian churches teach us as well, persons have the right to migrate in order to support themselves and their families when they can't do it in their country of origin. And though the churches are also very clear that, that countries have a right to maintain their borders, they also challenge and say, but countries who can, who have resources such as our country, should provide ways to accommodate this right to migrate um, so that people can find life and sustenance for, the, for themselves and their families. One of the other realities related to this is the, the issue of, of undocumented immigrant people who have come without going through the pipeline. Um, so this statement from the National Evangelical Association uh, looks at some of the, the issues around that. So it starts, due to the limited number of visas, Millions have entered the United States without proper documentation or have overstayed temporary visas. So they touch on a really important point, and that is there's a lot of rhetoric that says, well, people should just get in line and come in through regular channels. What they don't understand is that we have quotas, and we have quotas by countries, and they don't always make sense, and they're definitely not always related to uh, the workforce needs which is why you see a lot of business people at this time, why the business community has jumped in around immigration reform, um, because there just isn't a viable way. There's a bottleneck in the immigrant system that is not letting families are separated for 20, 25 years trying to reunite with family members. And, um, and so eventually people give up. And there isn't, a, there isn't a channel that's readily available. And that's particularly true for our neighbors from the south. Um, there's, I think, perhaps been a fear that everyone from Mexico and America will want to come here and will be inundated, which isn't exactly true. Again, most people would rather stay in their home countries. So, again, we look back at those root causes. Um, but also, um, our immigration system right now does not have a viable pipeline. Um, that meets the needs because people come because there are jobs and aren't they don't. And so again, the, the statement talks about saying, while these actions violate existing laws, socioeconomic, political, and legal realities contribute to the problematic nature of immigration and that society has ignored the existence of this unauthorized workforce for all that we talk about. Um, oh, excuse me. I think you can probably hear that that's the mindfulness chime on my computer to tell me to pause and slow down in the day. So I hope that didn't um, surprise you too much. It was a good reminder, Stephanie. <laughs> there you go. It's really nice and good and loud. <laughs> it is a good reminder for me every day, uh, every hour when I'm around to hear it. But um, yes, it is. And so, um, and indeed, in this kind of work, we know that we all need to pause and, and breathe and, and touch back into our God within, which is what I do when I hear that. Um, so the, the Evangelical Association talks about the fact that um, 
that we often ignore this, even though we talk and say we don't want it, we continue to turn our heads the other way many times because of the benefits of cheap immigrant labor. And often because of this, without legal status, I'm wary of reporting um, wage abuse. Uh, I, there's actual slavery that takes place um, in places where they bring people up and they, they promise them good jobs and then they don't uh, pay them. Uh, it's trafficking is what we call it now. Uh, it's happened a lot in the tomato fields in Florida. Um, they're getting a handle on that. It's happening in many, many ways, uh, many, many types of um, employment situations. So immigrants can easily be mistreated and underpaid or not paid at all. Um, and then, of course, we have deportation when people are caught here undocumented, and that separates families of those who children who were born here or a spouse who may have been born here. And we often think that if you're married to someone who's a citizen, you should be able to then pre-citizenship, and it is not that easy. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it's much more complicated. Uh, again, the Episcopal Church on immigration reform in 2010 reminds us um, that our world is migratory right now. There's lots of people moving for many reasons, and that it rejects efforts to criminalize undocumented immigrants and deplores the separation of families and the unnecessary incarceration of undocumented workers. Again, people are being incarcerated uh, for years before they're de deported sometimes. And they're usually taken, the family often does not know where they're taken to, and often it's very far from where the family is, so they can't visit easily. So there is a whole prison industry and its profits that are a part of this. And again, the Episcopal Church speaks of, and again, it, this is their statement, but again, all of the churches are saying these things. We confess our own complicit sinfulness as people who benefit from this labor without recognizing our responsibility to them. And I, again, uh, remind folks often when I'm talking to how much would your meat cost, your fruits and your vegetables? Um, who might have discovered uh, discovery, scientific discovery that was, you know, found by an immigrant? Um, how is it that we, that we, um, that we benefit, and yet at the same time, we treat people as if they're a threat. So we benefit, but we consider them a threat. And so finally, one of my, my most exciting finds, um, as I was actually just thinking I was done with this presentation and click on one more thing that was within one of the, the church documents, in February 1st of 2013, um, there's, they formed a group called, well, they may have formed it before, but they put out the statement, it's Christian churches, and this is a diverse group representing leadership from Catholic, Evangelical, and Pentecostal, historic Protestant, Orthodox, and historic black churches. And they agreed on these unified principles as we are looking at immigration reform, and that as we approach our politicians, that these are the things that our church is saying we, we should be telling them based on Christian principles. One that there needs to be an earned path to citizenship for the 11 million people in the United States without authorization. Call it amnesty, call it an earned path to citizenship. You know, there's lots of different words being bandied about, but the churches are saying people have a right to be recognized. They, there needs to be a path. It doesn't need to just be handed, but there needs to be a path to citizenship because going to what we just said, these people are contributing to our society and our communities. They're paying taxes, frankly. Uh, you know, they're using false documents and they're paying taxes and social security taxes that they will not draw on. Um, 
And we need to bring them out of the shadows because it's part of human dignity um, to do that. And so we need to offer citizenship to those that are already here. Second, I mentioned earlier, um, the priority of family reunification in any immigration reform. Again, there's been talk about reducing family immigration to uh, more uh, STEM immigrants, again, looking at the science, technology, engineering, and medical. And what the churches are saying is, no, families are essential, the backbone. They allow for immigrants to thrive. We need to prioritize that. It's not that we can't have the other. We, we need that, too. Um, but really questioning and saying, do our quotas need to be as small, perhaps, as we think? Um, and so how do we do that? But that this needs to be families, the, 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 the holiness and the, the essentialness of the family, the churches are saying, um, we must emphasize and make a priority. Secondly, or third, we can protect the integrity of our borders. And at the same time, we need to protect due process for immigrants and their families. And that's looking at some of the prison industry. It's looking at what happens when people come for asylum and they're sent back before they get any due process. Um, what happens, again, around the issues of, of uh, crime and what's considered a felony and um, people being deported for things they did 20 years ago when the law was different. Um, and so saying, what is due process and how do we make that just? Fourth, um, improving refuge protection laws and asylum laws. Um, again, um, I think I just alluded to that uh, when an asylum seeker comes. How do we make that process more just? How do we protect refugees um, and help bring them here when they can't be safe at home? And finally, that we need to review those international economic policies um, that, and political policies, I believe, that our country is involved in that, that are the root causes of unauthorized immigration. So how, does, how do our policies as a country and our multinational corporations and all of that um, affect and influence people's sense of their need to migrate. So those come, those are a joint statement, which like I said, just warms my heart. <laughs> so I'm so pleased uh, to see that we've come to this point uh, in, our, in our relationship as churches and, and um, certainly um, around this issue. Um, so now I just want to give you quick some resources um, to let you know, again, where else you might find information, who else you might connect with um, around this. And, and again, they're on that handout that, that, I, um, that, should, that was sent out, or if you don't have it, can be sent out. Um, but um, a, a couple of quick ones is the new fastaction.us. Um, again, fastaction.us is not on that list because it's quite new. Actually, it, it, is, it comes out perhaps out of Christian churches together, I'm not sure, but it's a group of um, churches coming together to fast and pray. It started uh, September 9th and it ends October 18th around the issue of immigration reform. So again, to educate oneself, to fast and pray together, and to take action, to move that fasting um, to, to action and justice, as Isaiah calls us to. Um, for those of you um, from a Catholic tradition, Justice for Immigrants is a website. Uh, from an evangelical tradition, Sojourners uh, with uh, Jim Wallace is a wonderful uh, resource. Each of, I've listed church documents um, 
I, I had a few of them up here, but there are documents from many of the churches. And if yours isn't listed, Google it. Find out, is your church saying anything? Um, there are just so, there are uh, on the list as well some, I think it's American immigration that, that kind of keep you up to date on the, the policies and the legal things going on, as well as they do a lot of analysis of the economic impact of migration and immigration, um, looking at myths and facts. Uh, so those are out there. Um, there, locally there may be, Minnesota for example has something called the Immigrant Law Center and Advocates for Human Rights. Most states have um, law centers addressing immigrant, refugee, and asylee issues. They often are really good sources of information. So I encourage you to, to really just delve into those um, as you continue to reflect on the scriptural and theological uh, basis um, in this call to action uh, around immigration. And finally, I just, um, I just remind you, um, I think this is what underlies everything in our faith tradition. The first commandment is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And we remember from the story of the Good Samaritan who our neighbor is. It's often the person that's different from us. It's, it's not just those we're comfortable with. And so I really I'd leave you with that um, as the grounding and the basis for, for how we respond to our immigrant brothers and sisters as Christian social workers. Um, I put my email up. It's not on the one that was sent out to you because I just thought of it. But if anybody wants to have any more conversation or would like any resources or help finding them, I'm certainly happy to do that. Um, so. Um, I thank you. I open it up again for any final questions or comments. I think we've got a few minutes left. Again, if anyone has a comment or question, uh, if you can um, star uh, six on your telephone pad. We only have uh, time for maybe one or two comments, but if you have um, something that you'd like to say, please do share with us. Um, hi, um, my name is Nola Burnett. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. Thank you so much for what you've given us today. And um, my question, um, just I think at the beginning I was not quite getting everything because there was some noise going on around our office, and I didn't quite get the difference between um, asylees and refugees. Um, could you clarify that again, please? Sure, I'd be happy to. They basically, they're very similar in the sense that they are fleeing um, political, religious uh, persecution. They're threatened with death in some way in their home countries, whether that's war or, again, a, a political um, or religious targeted persecution or an ethnic persecution. Um, but what refugees, generally when they flee, they flee to another country and are in a refugee camp. And while they're in the right. camp, they get they get their permission to come to the United States. Asylees go from their country of origin or, or perhaps another country, but they come into the United States without having gotten legal permission to be here yet. So they show up, and then, and then they have to begin the process asking for legal permission to be here. Okay, fine. That's what I was thinking, but thank you very okay. much. Um, You're welcome. I have worked with the Burmese population here, and so that's why I wanted some clarification. Thank you. Sure, sure. Yes, we have a lot of Karen immigrants from Burma right now I'm working with. They're beautiful. 
Other questions, comments? Hey, Sister Stephanie, this is Patty in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, just a okay. quick, uh, for your information, you mentioned Vigilio Elizondo, and he is from San Antonio, because he said somewhere in Texas, well, he's here in San Antonio. San Antonio, okay. Yes, he's very respected in the issues uh, as a as a commentator and issues of injustice. So, mm -hmm. so that's the FYI where he's located. But uh, I have a quick question in regard to what would be your general response to uh, church with traditional benevolent ministries, hunger, clothing, those kind of things. And you 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 um, made in the bullets of the call to action about education mm -hmm. and. Being sensitive, mm -hmm. but what would you? But you're talking to the church leaders. So what kind of either such as what would be your your uh, uh, hands-on recommendations you would make for them to become immigration friendly, and also mm -hmm. what models are out there that we could search that you're saying oh these these churches have done a really good job in being mm -hmm. you know immigrant friendly in the ministries that they have. Hmm. Particular uh, faith tradition you're coming from? Uh, no, just your stereotypical church typical. that has, okay. you know, clothing and they have yep. food, you know, those kinds. Okay, yeah, and and that's really common. Um, and I think, you know, I can speak from my social teaching. There's a lot in there that talks about we need to move beyond charity to justice. So charity is important. But we are really called beyond charity to justice. And it goes back to that question of how do we change the social structures that allow these injustices to exist. Um, so that's, and, and that's a hard place for people to get to. Um, and, and so it, it really is asking some of those questions and again looking scripturally, looking at, at whatever, you know, whatever your tradition might bring or anybody else's traditions where you can find, you know, uh, information that might really challenge and say, um, how it was called beyond just that personal charity to to really really getting to the structural changes that challenge all of us, um, that social sin, um, and that's not easy. As far as models, um, as to churches that have done this well, ooh, um, you know, locally, I I know some churches that have. I couldn't speak on a national level um, about that. Um, I, I think that, again, I know in the Catholic tradition, going back to Jim Wallace and the evangelical tradition of sojourners, there are kind of national efforts to, to uh, provide uh, materials and on justice. And, um, and so I think down in San Antonio, oh, we have school sisters down there, um, but I, I, I've been there. It's a lovely, a lovely area. Um, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't specifically say. Uh, what models there there are um, in your area, or um, I'd have to think about that a lot more. Or I'd encourage you to, um, you know, to kind of look around you, and certainly uh, by email, etc. You could um, we could talk more about that. Sure, and and um, thank you. It was it was I thought of. of uh, if you had names of particular churches you you'd witnessed, and we could Google them on the on the uh, internet, yeah. read about the program, that kind of thing that says we're doing this, this because generally right. when you work with congregations, they want to know who else is doing this, 
and something that right, they can right. read on or may, or visit it in their mm-hmm. area. So I was just curious. Right. I'd, I'd, I'd have to do a little more research um, on that in terms of what, you know, who might have more, uh, what would you say, um, well-thought-out extensive programs. Um, I just, off the top of my head, I can't name that for you. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. It was a very good yeah, presentation. Yeah, thank you. We are um, we are needing to wrap up, so um, let me thank you so much, Stephanie, for today's excellent session. Again, one that challenges to think um, at a macro level at structural change, to do so in a way that uh, uh, challenges to look through the lens of our Christian faith and, and how that shapes the way that we um, discuss and, and work on this very important issue. Thank you for joining us today for NACSW's Podcast of the Month featured selection. We hope you found today's session useful and that it will support your efforts to thoughtfully integrate Christian faith and social work practice. We also hope that you will consider participating in additional NACSW's activities and events, including NACSW's upcoming convention in the fall, our quarterly audio conference workshops that we offer at no cost to NACSW members and which includes free CEUs accredited by the Association of Social Work Boards, our online continuing education program, and access to dozens of archived podcasts from the member section of our website. Also, we invite you to join NACSW's Facebook group or our Facebook fan page. For additional information about these and other NACSW benefits and services, you can go to our website at www.nacsw.org. Thanks again for listening in today to our podcast session today.